Hey everyone, this is Dandelions, and I'm your host, Mizell. In today's episode, I'm joined by not one, but two HLS1Ls, Diego and Sebastian Negron Richard. They're not twins, but brothers that happened to start law school at the same time. And though they were born and raised on the island of Puerto Rico, they hate swimming in the ocean because of a mutual phobia of fish. The youngest generation of a storied Puerto Rican political family, Diego and Sebastian begin to explore the inspiration and insecurities that accompany an inherited family legacy of public service. And as we discuss their visions for the future of the island, Diego and Sebastian remind us that different life experiences can yield different ideas of how to best reach a common goal and of the very importance of seeing and celebrating that which is different than you. I'm so excited for you to meet Diego and Sebastian. I'm so excited because today with me, I have Diego and Sebastian, um, who are two brothers, one L's at HLS this year. And the reason I'm so excited is because my older sister, Solange, was a 3L when I was a 1L. So I think there's going to be a lot for us to dive into. Um, But I I guess I'll start off by letting you guys introduce yourselves so we can get a sense of who is who and your voices. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Diego. I'm Sebastian. I'm the oldest... uh... Of the five of us, uh, the five siblings, uh, I'm 26 from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I'm a 1L at HLS. Hi there, Zebby. Um, and Mazel. I'm Diego. I'm 24. I am the second child, and hence that's why I introduced myself second. Um, I am currently in Arizona, but just like Zebby from Puerto Rico, um, and really excited to be here at 1L, and especially with Mazel. What? Why, thank you. Um, just kind of... Uh, Embracing you guys, I'm probably, since I am the second child, I'm probably going to be a little partial to Diego, but I'm going to try to check myself. And if I don't, you can call me out, Sebi. Um, that, that, that's okay. Uh, older siblings are known for being impartial, so I'll talk to your sister. Oh my gosh. This isn't going to go well. This is, is going to be fun. Um, Just kidding. No, it's thank you for fun. having us. No, of course. Thank you for being here. Um, so you've You've both just started at HLS, as you've said, um, which is very, very exciting. But uh, as is kind of the theme with all of these episodes, I'm most excited in everything that came before this in in a certain sense. Um, so you're both from Puerto Rico, as you said. Uh, is that home? Is that where you always lived? Your stateside now? Can you just walk me through like a brief timeline? Yeah, so both Sebi and me grew up in Puerto Rico, all of our elementary and high school. So we did high school until we were 18 in Puerto Rico. And then we set off to um, university in the States. Sebi went to Penn, I went to Princeton, and that was our first sort of long-term time um, in the mainland. So we've, you know, most of our life is in Puerto Rico except these last few years. Okay, great. And then after you guys graduated from university in America, did you go home? Did you stay here? So I went, I spent a year in New York doing consulting, and then I moved to Puerto Rico where I worked for three years in government uh, right before joining HLS. And Diego uh, spent uh, his time after graduation in, 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 in the mainland. In the mainland. Um, I'm kind of observing something. Did you guys come up with a code where you like nod at each other for who takes what question? 
Yeah, it sort of just came up as we were talking where we kind of read each other's gestures pretty well. So I can tell when he wants me to speak or I want him to speak. Oh, it works well. Yeah, I, I know exactly. You just kind of like make eyes and you don't even have to move your eyes or whatever. But like it's just the recognition, the sibling recognition. I I think I can recognize it because I do it. Um, okay, so you were working in government, Sebastian, in Puerto Rico. What were you, were you, what was your deal, Diego? So I worked in the private sector for a bit in Miami, and then I moved um, to the federal government in D.C. I was working at the DOD, um, and it was mostly during the pandemic uh, when it started. So I was working on the sort of on the crisis team for the DOD for the pandemic response. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> crisis team, DOD, pandemic response, uh, Sebi in Portuguese government, which is dealing with a lot from, you know, what, what the newspapers tell me. Um, do you, is that just happenstance that both of you guys are kind of, or a coincidence rather, that you guys are in government and working at times of crisis? So I, I think that it's no coincidence in the sense that both of us share a deep commitment with uh, serving. And in, in our case, Thankfully, we've had the opportunity to do it early on in, uh, in our careers. And so in my case, uh, I went back to Puerto Rico because I, I really believe that the island can shine again and be so successful. And so I, I left my comfy job in New York to, to Puerto Rico where we went through uh, two hurricanes, more than 100 earthquakes, a pandemic, a governor, a constitutional crisis, but we kept going because, I mean, so much to do. But as you say, I think that, at least if I'll, I'll speak for myself, uh, I've been very grateful to have the opportunity to to give back and to serve um, my co-citizens in, in government. And it's been a really rewarding job. It was a really rewarding job. I think that's true. I think we, we definitely have that family connection to public service. And what family uh, connection to public service? Ooh, <laughs> ooh. Secret, secrets. Uh, no. So um, most of our, uh, so our, our, my dad and my grandfather and sort of the ones before them were in Puerto Rico uh, service. So my dad was dep- deputy uh, secretary of treasury in Puerto Rico for, for a minute. Grandpa was attorney general for a minute. And um before them, um, some of our great-grandparents uh, were signatories to the Puerto Rican Constitution. So there's a long lineage of public service it's like in our lives. History of family, you know, that family history of public service isn't just like small family <laughs> history. That's like a that's a that's a big history. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess it's not just a minute, but uh, we, you know, we grew up with around those conversations and the idea that um, we we owe something to the island. Um, and I think that's where the initial roots of public service um, took place. What is it like for you when I like to talk about it like that? Like, I feel like you're like not hesitant to touch on it, but it, it's bringing, I don't know. What what are you feeling? I, I just think it's um, it's something that we don't really share with a lot of people it's something for the family that we're proud of to ourselves and something that we hold really you know has a lot of value i normally don't talk about it um that freely in those terms um it's i guess your reaction is like it really does sound 
like it's a strong tradition once I like say it out loud and it's but to me it's sort of like that's just what you do you know you you give your talents to service and if I can add to that I think that even though I've never I've never been told that I need to continue that tradition I've always been taught the importance of giving back and to serving the community and at least personally personally and I think that Diego shares this it is kind of a big kind of burden on us that we, we we have to fill big big shoes. And so I think that's why we're more in the in the idea of let's not talk about it and actually get something done. And so I guess just complimenting what he was saying, that's that's where it's coming from. I mean, am I correct to say that or like to feel I can imagine like it's not just let's not talk about it to get something done, but it's like because you have these big shoes to fill, but it's also, let's not talk about it because the more we talk about it, the bigger the shoes are, like the bigger the shadow is on my shoulder. For sure. I think that's true. I think that we don't really talk about it a lot because it sort of becomes how how clear it is that, I don't know if there's an expectation, but we definitely have imposed ourselves a really high bar of what it means, what we want to do for Puerto Rico. To, to give you an example, uh, our, our grandfather sent us an email the other day with a, a speech from our great grandfather uh, about Puerto Rico's future. And like, I read it and I'm like, even after Harvard, I won't be able to write something like this. And I shared it with Diego. I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and so uh, I just thought it was really cool because I mean, the speech is about 120 years old, but it's still relevant today. And so it, it was just a funny moment. Yeah. And thankfully, our grandfather sends us really cool emails yeah, all the time. That's why so. I like my laughs. Like, I just get really weird WhatsApp videos like, <laughs> in our big family group chat in like Wait, Farsi. We get, that those, I just... we get those too. Okay. Get those. But in addition, you get, you know, the words of your ancestors, you know, that <laughs> yeah. matter. Um, so I guess I, there's like two ways that my mind is like split into one, it's just what you said of, the words of 120 years ago that apply today um, and what that means. And the other is kind of you being able to go to Diego and like share in that kind of experience and like wait together um, and have what seems to be from like a third party perspective, a similar response to it, right? It's not like one of you said, haha, sorry, great grandpa, I'm going to go, you know, be an actor, which would be great and totally fair and amazing, but you both have kind of reacted or responded to it in a similar way, which seems to be to continue and try to live like, you know, continue the trajectory of your family. Definitely. I, I When we read that speech or just have those conversations with our grandfather, I it, it, there's sort of a frustration because realize the reason it's relevant because a lot of the problems are the same ones today. And what I think that means in many ways is that those problems um, can have a solution. You know, our great grandfather was talking about them 120 years ago. We just haven't done it. Uh, so it's it's sort of a you know, it's it's a feeling that we can do this kind of thing. Well, in, in the case of the problems that I mean, Diego and I and our, and our family like to talk about, which is kind of how do we how does Puerto Rico move forward? I think it's a case in point of not having to reinvent the wheel in the sense that the the solutions are there of mm -hmm. things that can be done 
either in the short, medium, or long term, depending on what the solution is, to fix to fix the island. And so, it, it's just reading back 120 years. It's frustrating, but it also reinforces the idea that the solutions have been there for a while. Let's just get a group together to implement them. And so it's both frustration and kind of hope that our ideas are okay. We just need to mm-hmm. get going. So you mentioned like solutions. Um, if you were to give me this like spark notes version of what the kind of solutions are or what that looks like, uh, you know, to, to someone who is not familiar with them, what would you guys, and this isn't like your stump speech of like, you know, when you run for office, but just like really on a human level. Oh, hold it. Um, okay. Um, I'll, I can start and, and Diego has awesome ideas as well. And so I, I see, I mean, solutions for Puerto Rico in particular um, in kind of a, a two tier track of parallel solutions. And so one is the status issue. Uh, and we could have many podcasts about Puerto Rico's colonial situation, unfair, uh, not right, unconstitutional, is what it is. Um, and then the other track is good governance solutions for the lives of everyday citizens. And so on the track of, of the status, I think that Puerto Rico should become a state. And I think that it is both something that Puerto Ricans aspire to, and it's something that Puerto Ricans deserve given the current situation in which they are in, that we are in. However, I don't think that by just claiming we want statehood, we need statehood now, that's just gonna magically come. We need to work for it and we need to show the US the value of having Puerto Rico join as a state. We need to show the US the hundreds of unfortunate and disgusting um unfair things that were done to puerto ricans but we can i mean the american dream can is is moving and is getting better and if things can be corrected in the mainland we can correct that in puerto rico as well and so my view is moving towards statehood but making the case for statehood it's not like give me statehood now when puerto rico is in bankruptcy and puerto rico um economy is not growing. We need to get that going. And that goes straight into the second area I was talking about, the good governance. I mean, it's a big title, but what I want to say with that is Puerto Rico has amazing natural um, characteristics that should be uh, used. The weather, the people, the culture, the beach. Brought to you everything. by the Tourism Association of Puerto Rico. <laughs> I don't get any single thing right from them. I, I I'm kidding. That. I'm kidding. I mean, it's, it's I know, I know, you I know. Google it. It uh, really is okay. stunningly beautiful. What, what I'm saying is all these amazing attributes need to go in somehow into what is the model that we propose for the economy to, to rebuild the economy. And that's where I say there it's like not, we don't need like I mean, management consulting solutions to get this done. The solutions are out there. We need a government that lays out an economic growth strategy and implements it. 
and we need a government that is focused on fixing the service delivery to citizens. That has nothing to do with statehood or the colonial status. Puerto Rico has more than 160 agencies, but you would ask every resident and they would say that they are not happy with the services that they receive. And so I truly believe that the government needs to focus on providing better and more efficient services to the people of Puerto Rico. And so long story short, the status issue needs to be solved and the governance issue needs to be solved as well. I liked your rant. <laughs> it's it great you guys do my job it. for me. Yeah. Um, I think um, Puerto Rico has been a colony for over 500 years. It has literally been the property of someone else, another country, for over 500 years. Um, and I'll say this because we're in a Harvard podcast. Harvard played an instrumental role in the in the colonialization of Puerto Rico. It gave the legal um, racist um, ammunition to put Puerto Rico in a state of colonialism for the United States. A lot of the insular cases came from the greatest minds of Harvard. So I'll just start off by saying it feels a little weird for us, I think, hmm. coming to this institution where it plays such a big role in um, uh, putting down our people. And now we're here trying to get the tools from the same place to then free our people. Um, and so, you know, I won't talk about governance much, but there, when when you go towards statehood or any kind of political solution, there's an emancipation of the psyche or, or the people that hasn't happened in over 500 years. Puerto Ricans need to feel empowered that their problems are their problems, and so their solutions must also be theirs. Um, and so I think what's going to be critical is um, from a community level, which is mostly what I focus on, is making sure that people feel like they have the right and the authority to take charge of their problems. Because if you always think that you belong to someone else, then you will never um, sort of have that feeling of empowerment to take care of your own problems. And I think that speaks both to governance, where you expect someone else to save us, and also the status, which is, you know, a subordination. And adding real quick to Diego's point on, on Harvard's role, I want to change how Harvard is seen by Puerto Rican colonial history. I want to be able to say, yes, this is how Harvard intervened 100, 120 years ago, but look what it's capable of doing now hmm. and overturning such a disgusting um, reality of the law. And as part of that, what you guys were saying, of like the minds that came out of the institution, like you guys are, you know, it's, it's weird to be going to this place of, you know, colonialization to learn the tools to go back. But that's part of that larger kind of narrative, right, of changing from within and not really from within as much as like from yourself, like through through your personhood. Right. Absolutely. I, I think it... Um... Harvard has a historical role in many places around the world. Um, here's an unfortunate one uh, that played a role in our home. And so we're here knocking on Harvard's door saying, you know, pay up, uh, although they're taking all our money. Um, and the goal is to put that to Puerto Rico service. Just to go back to the family, just to go back to the family thing quickly, um, as you guys kind of gave your separate 
you know, responses to my question of, of whatever the issue was. And you're saying that's the same kind of stuff that your family, you know, you talked about at home and your great grandfather wrote about 120 years ago. Do you ever kind of question, not question it, but like, I would feel like I would have some weird existential crisis where I'm like, are these ideas even mine? Like when they're just so baked in and embedded? Um, or is that not really how it is in reality? I think that for me, my my approach to Puerto Rico was sort of not very linear. And it, it, it took several events for me to realize what my actual opinion of Puerto Rico was. Um, so when I graduated college, uh, I came out uh, of the closet in at Princeton when my first year or my second year. And uh, Puerto Rico, I did not have a good experience with it growing up. And so I sort of growing up was like, this island is going nowhere. There's nothing to do here. I'm going to New York. Um, very Hamilton. And then, uh, you know, after living away from the island for, you know, a couple of years and getting that outside perspective and realizing, oh, like I have a role to play here. Even if I thought when I was growing up that that role was denied to me. Um, because and you were gay. Yeah. What, because I thought, you know, I'm not part of this. Like, this is not the place for me. I have bigger things to do. The island is too small for me. And I know that sounds kind of selfish but it's more like a I didn't feel included thing yeah. and so now coming after that experience uh, um, externally I realize you know my own potential I'm like oh I have a lot to give um, and I'm and I've I'm sort of prepared to give it even I've, if I come back and I meet a lot of resistance. Sebastian I, I told you I was going to be partial to your brother um, so I'm going to kind of ignore your I'm not going to give you a chance to respond because I have to follow up on that. Um, you said that when you, you thought that you had nothing to say, but from your story of, you know, feeling out of place, it sounds more like you felt like no one would listen. And that to me seems like a crucial piece in what you're saying about, or not even a crucial piece, but a crucial insight into government and political participation in a way. Um, because it was part of your family. Like if there was a person who should feel as if what they're going to say is going to be heard, right, as is evidenced by your brother and the rest of your family, like it should have been you. But when the system or the community that you were part of signaled to you that you could speak, but you wouldn't be heard, that invariably led to you feeling like you shouldn't speak at all and not wanting to be involved. Did I like hear you correctly? Yeah, you read me, Mazelle. Um, I think that's, I, I really like how you phrased that. And so I'm going to take that to my therapist. Um, <laughs> I'm really I'm regurgitating kidding. what mine said to me. So, you know. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> I think that's on point. I think that uh, a, a small example in high school, um, I never felt like I could run for, you know, class officer or, or any kind of those things because I felt like I wasn't really the archetype of what a, mm -hmm. a guy is in an all boys school. And fa fast forward, I don't know, five, six years later, now I'm like pretty, uh, I feel like a leader in the like the alumni community for my boys high school. I'm like posting on their Facebook and like small stuff like that. Mm -hmm. that you could never feel like you could do in high school, but it comes from a feeling of being tested at my undergrad, at work, and every time like showing up and doing better um, that now I'm like, oh, like, you know, I can do this. 
and to just, you know, therapist had it again, would I be correct if I also, you know, to continue reading you? It's not just that you got tested at work and school, but in the States, in, you know, liberal elite institutions, you were loved and not in a way, that's not to put you on blast, Sebi, and your family of like, you weren't loved, but like you didn't have to hide yourself. Like you weren't out throughout high school. Right. Exactly. No, I think that's key. I think the, the moment community members feel involved or like welcomed, I would say the moment community members feel welcomed, they feel like the problem or the issue um, is also part of them, Mm -hmm. right? Why would you care of a community if they didn't care for you? And so I think Princeton was the first time where um, I got that reciprocity where someone was like, oh, like I see you. Um, And that's when I started doing all sorts of like activisms, protests, running for student government um, and doing all sorts of, you know, pretty public things, uh, which were a lot of fun and I mean, a lot of trouble, but they were fun. And Sebastian, like as the older brother, what is it like for you to hear everything that Diego just kind of ex- talked about or touched on? No, I mean it's 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 interesting because I'm I've always thought and known that Diego has an amazing role to play in in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that I don't recognize that Puerto Rican community can be for in some issues. 50 years behind where the rest of the world is. And so there's this thing in Puerto Rico, people say, oh, the LGBTQ community, as if it's something distant and remote. No, it's it's just life. And, and I mean, I have a gay brother and I love him and I don't think about anything about his sexuality. I don't care. And that's how it should be in every single case. And so thankfully we have amazing parents that think the same way. And for us, it's just something that we learned, we move on. And so from that perspective, it has been, it has been great. I mean, it's, it has been, it has been great. And I hope Diego agrees, but um, on, on the high school, kind of some of his stories, I mean, I share some of those. I mean, I ran for, for a class officer and I never won. You were a nerd. <laughs> You too. Big. It's really interesting because you answered a question that I may have asked, but is not what I wanted to, to, to ask or get from you, which is you're his older brother, right? You're his family member. And, you know, your family is so close and you guys are so close. And you like hear in a way that for by no fault of your own, but for a number of years of your brother's life, he didn't like in, because of larger society feel in a way accepted, right. As you just said, Diego, or like fully like seen or like love, not love, but like, you know, the, the full warm embrace of like safety and acceptance that as humans, we all like want. Um, I guess in to like, what emotions, not really what do you think, but like, what do you feel hearing that? So from one perspective, it, it feels terrible, and especially from a, a, an older brother role to know that Diego felt that way and that maybe I could have done something to help um, so that he didn't feel that way because I certainly don't share the view that 
she shouldn't have been included in the community. And so it is, I mean, I, I can only think of what I can do in, in prospectively so that he doesn't feel that way ever again. And so if, if I get hung up on, on thinking about those years in high school in which both, I mean, we had great experiences together, um, I just can think about it prospectively and how it, it shouldn't happen to him again and it shouldn't happen to any single boy or girl in Puerto Rico or in the world. And I mean, that's a reality that the world is, is dealing with, but to the extent that it's something that it's close to me, then I just want to make sure that it doesn't happen again. I think what's so interesting about interesting is not really the right word, but what comes to mind like in this conversation and I'm probably projecting here, as I said, my older sister and I, you know, both went to HLS and she's 13 months older than I am. So we have, you know, we're incredibly close, but also have a very complicated relationship. I guess my question is, is like, what is the nature of your relationship, right? Like you are these two brothers who are, you know, in the same class at Harvard Law School, like that, you know, whenever anyone hears, they're like, I would introduce myself as, hi, I'm Solange. I'm, see, I'm Mazelle. I'm Solange's little sister. And people are like, oh my God, there's two of you here? Like your parents must be so proud. And that's like one level of like our relationship, right? Of like being siblings, you guys are the Negron Richard brothers. You know, and we're like, you're the Edisami sisters. That's amazing. But like, you know, that's one level. Then the other is like within the siblinghood, there's each of you and your own individual people and then your own relationship as siblings. Um, so I guess I'm just curious to hear what you guys think about that. Diego, just Diego, Sebastian just signaled that he's going first. So I, I think, I, I, I think it's great that we're doing this one L thing at the same time, because for better or for worse, it's, it has always been me first. And so kind of on my own and I, feel great to have someone that I trust um, going through this at the same time. We can talk about our professors, about our classmates, about doing Zoom online, which clubs to join, the law review. And so Diego is just brilliant. And every time I don't understand something, I'll call him and I ask him. And so I am super happy that we're going through it at the same time. Yeah, I am pretty smart, I guess. Um... <laughs> No, I think Sebastian has had, I don't know if it's unfair, but he's had definitely the huge burden of going through everything by himself and doing it first in the family. Uh, you know, going through uh, difficult schools, you know, killing in the job news and all this kind of stuff. And so I've always had him to tell me what happens next. And now we sort of don't know what happens next at the same time. Um, so that's been really interesting. And I've, I've, like Sebastian said, it's been fun for me having the opportunity to advise him because it's always been Is it the fun? other way. Well, like it just. Or you're like, just, bro, where are you? You're supposed to tell me. I don't know. Like, well, it just feels like, like I, it's not that I owe him anything, but like, oh, I can help you here. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can, you know, I worked at a law firm. I kind of get what's 20% of what's going on. Um, so that's cool. Um, he, but yes. Yeah, uh, it's also another thing, and not to, you know, Sebastian and I are both struggling right now. We're in the middle of 1L. Uh, we have a memo due this weekend, and uh, 
for me, Sebastian's always been this like giant figure in my life. It's sort of just things work for him. And then mm. seeing him struggle at the same time, it's it's sort of calming because I'm like, oh, even this like giant in my life sort of struggles too. So I'm like, well, I guess, I guess if Sebi's having a tough time, I'm, it's okay for me to have a tough time too. That to me tells me something foundationally about your guys' relationship, right? Which is that it is one of mutual like recognition and appreciation, right? Like you, you can recognize that Sebastian has done everything first and how much harder it's been for him. And at the same time, look up to him as this like icon and without necessarily putting yourself down. Um, so like, what did your parents do to instill in you guys this kind of relationship that that is able to in the midst of like the insanity that is one out there's a world in which I can imagine that this is like what pulls you guys apart is like you're you're going through this horrible situation together it's crazy competitive it's you know really hard and instead of like going to opposite directions it sounds like you guys are saying unless <laughs> this is all a, a guys and really you know stuff is is way worse than it seems and then faces are being made so I'm gonna stop talking and let you guys take over I think our dad established sort of this principle that family above everything. Um, and so it was sort of a guiding principle, both mom and dad, but it was a guiding principle in when it comes to when I came out, you know, my dad had no experience with any gay person, much less in their close family. And so, you know, his reaction was like, okay, but he immediately then said, I, you know, above everything, we are a family and we will figure it out together. And that was his philosophy when we were telling other members of the family. And so it was always, uh, we are a one team kind of thing. And so people always expect Sebastian and me to compete with each other. Even in high school, they were like, oh, like, you know, did you win this award or whatever that Sebastian won? But it was never like that because in my mind, me and Sebastian are not against each other. We're sort of on the same side of the court and we're up against a challenge together. I get just to kind of prod and poke what, you know, if you guys are the, the ideal of siblinghood, which is honestly what you're describing. Um, I think there is perhaps some value in, in learning about what your conflicts do look like when they arise, because you, you know, if you have this really foundational like support and love of each other, then how do you process through conflict, comp competitiveness when it does arise, anger, disappointment? How does what does that look like? I mean, we we do fight a lot. I mean, we're siblings, right? It's you not just like fought over who's going to answer that question with your right, faces. Exactly. And he's like, go, no, there you go. Yeah. Uh, we do fight a lot. And I think that's normal and healthy. Uh, it means we are our own people. We have our own opinions. Yeah. Like our politics are very different. Um, well, not, you know, in some respects are different and, um, our views on certain things are, are different as well. Um, and we get really heated discussions when we're home. Um, but at the, it's just sort of an assumption that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because we're on the same team sort of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't, I, I agree hundred percent. And if we fight, I just see that as something normal that happens in every sibling relationship. And um, we fight about many things as simple as um, what to have for dinner 
and it's complicated as to how Puerto Rico should look like in 50 years. You gave me two, two sides of the opposite spectrum. You gave me on one side, um, we fight about what to have for dinner, right? Which is just like bickering. And then on your side of like, when we really fight, it's again about Puerto Rico. Like, where are you guys? Like, who is Sebastian and who is Diego? And where do you fit into that as like individuals? Or do you not? And is that what public service really is? Is that you give yourself up to the larger goal, which is bettering Puerto Rico? I think we we bring different perspectives to the to the issue. So, for example, um, I think at least in my perspective, I've, I'm bringing the perspective of someone who's never been in group in the island. And so I find myself always giving Sebi advice as to um, certain issues or or questions that maybe he hasn't had to ask himself. Uh, meanwhile, Sebastian is really, really good at people, management, he, and when I'm struggling, he brings those perspectives to me. But they're, they're, they're very quite different. Like, um, we, and so maybe the reasons we don't fight so much nowadays is because since our experiences have been really different in many ways, like, we're sort of complementing what, what each other doesn't have. There seems to be a conflation, and not just in what you guys are saying and in your experience, but perhaps this is illuminating and, and informative for everyone. But like politics is personal, like your political experience. So when you say we fight about politics, you may be fighting about politics, but in a way, not that that's a proxy or like a, you know, but, but you're fighting about your own perspectives and experiences. Um, so I guess there's three levels, right? In your, in your own individual stories, in terms of you guys as brothers as a whole and as together, and in terms of your guys' relationships with Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico's relationship with America, the, the through line that I'm seeing and hearing through all of it is like paradox in a way and holding two truths at once, right? Is it, It's not only one side can be right at the expense of another side being explicitly wrong, but it's this living in the gray space which is, I think what's so amazing, what I keep coming back to is like, that's not normal these days, right? Like we live in a world of black and white and you guys as individuals, but you know, as your relationship with Puerto Rico, your relationship with your high school, your relationship as brothers and all, you know, going back all the way in your analysis of Puerto Rico and its relationship with America and itself, like you, you guys are comfortable living in the gray and maybe that's the magic sauce. Thank you for listening to Dandelions, a podcast sponsored by student government at Harvard Law School. Dandelions is executive produced by Anjali Banjiri and me, Mazala Dasami. Produced by Sam Harris, Solange Dasami, and Danny Belgrad. The show is written by Sam Harris and edited by Danny Belgrad. Artwork designed by Georgia Salisbury. Special thanks to Christy Jobson, Sam Parker, Sarah DeLorme, Diego Alvarez, Noel Graham, and Billy Wright. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University. Thanks so much for listening and see you again next time.